I think that desire to do it for somebody else comes from the mistaken notion that to take care of ourselves is selfish. Mm. So I can't be doing it just for myself because that would mean I'm selfish or I'm self-absorbed or I'm not serving other people. And I've learned the hard way that until we learn to connect with ourselves and invest in ourselves and give to ourselves, other relationships can be damaging. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, I loved this week's conversation with psychotherapist and leadership coach, Karen Hardwick. Lindsay and I got to sit down with Karen for a conversation all about connection. The conversation got pretty vulnerable and we talked about how we can find and connect with our true selves so that we can show up better in every area of our lives. In her work in her newest book, The Connected Leader, Karen helps leaders uncover how connection heals our wounds, awakens our soul, and ushers us into our most authentic, courageous, and empowered selves. Don't we all deserve that? I was just so grateful for this conversation, and it really just felt like getting coffee with an old friend. So join in on our conversation with Karen Hardwick. Well, welcome, Karen Hardwick. We are so excited to be sitting down with you. You are a friend of OnSite, and I'm just excited to get to know you a little bit better. I'm excited for the opportunity to sit down. And before we started recording, you said you wanted it to just feel like we were having coffee. Yeah, so if we were having coffee, I think I'd be ordering a latte, right? So I'm just going to pretend that, yeah. A latte. I would be ordering an iced coffee. That's what I would be having today. So just a little bit in the summary mood. Well, I think I would kind of maybe start to say... What have been the highs of this season for you and what have been the lows? If I was having coffee with you, I would kind of ask you that question. Mm, Highs, moving to Montana. Oh, Oh, wow. Yes. That's the dream. (laughs) Like seriously, just like kind of living the dream, working, enjoying all things outdoors. It was a big move to leave Atlanta and to be out here. So I have to say that is definitely a high. It feels like it was courageous, but it was also choosing what was soul nurturing. Definitely. And all about connection for me. So we're here. And yeah, it's a low. I'm coming up empty. That doesn't mean I don't have hard moments or hard days. I, I think it's just also probably about the move, just kind of settling in and dealing with all the things like, where's the grocery store? And how do I get to my 12-step recovery meetings? Where are, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the transition and what prompted a big move like that. You'd been in Atlanta for how long? Mm, Right after graduate school. So let's just say many, many moons. For a little (laughs) while. Many moons. (laughs) Yeah, for a hot minute. (laughs) It was really about, Lindsay, listening to the divine call. Mm. I knew I really wanted to be out here. From the time my son and I came out here numerous years ago, we were like, oh, wow, this is our place. This is a really special place. And however, even when I knew that, there's all these things inside of me that's saying, but you really can't go. Yeah. Like, you have a life here and 
friends here and your business and all those things. So there's, it's amazing that when we're hearing the divine call, there's also these contradictory voices that come in very powerful. Well, that's brave. Well, can you afford to do that? All those fear-based things. So I don't want to say it was easy. However, it was really right because it's felt as if the seas parted and I just walked through. Oh, wow. That's great. Right? So here I am. I feel like sometimes we hear that like whisper of uh, the divine call of like, hey, change is coming. Start to step into this new thing. And it feels like you said scary. And with it comes like all of our doubts and our fears (laughs) and insecurities even about like, is it possible? Could that be right? Am I hearing? Can I trust myself? Can I trust what I'm listening to? And so I'd love to hear more about your process. I know you said that everything kind of parted, but what, like, as you sort of started to have intuition grow about this, this is the place for this next season for you, how how did you sort of trust yourself and begin to step into that as a reality? Mm, That's a great question because 100%, I think that we can talk ourselves out of the absolute inner truth. We can talk ourselves out of that. I think the process for me was very rooted in just my daily solitude, my chasing slow practice, my prayer practice, my mindfulness, you know, running things by my sponsor, making sure I was checking things out with my therapist, you know, just checking in with the tribe. Like, am I making this up? Does this really seem possible? And it wasn't as if they were even talking me into everything. It was more like, you can trust yourself. Mm, And every time we got to a crossroads where I had to make some kind of a decision about the logistics, things literally just fell into place. Like, I don't think I ever had anything go so smoothly in my whole life in terms of like big transitional things or, or, or big decisions. So it was a lot of quieting down the outside noise and taking that risk of stepping into abundance instead of sticking with scarcity. Like all those reasons why we shouldn't do something or can't do something. That's so good. We have been talking in our house a lot about the trade-offs of good for great. Because if you've got something and you're in a season, it sounds like you were in a good season, but you felt this call for more, this divine call, like this could be better at the risk of it being great. And so I wonder, have you always had that internal, like I can trust myself and lean into this? Or is this something that you've developed over the last couple of years? And what have those practices been like to help you slow down, like you were saying, chasing slow, to listen to yourself enough to trust yourself? Mm. There have been times, Mackenzie, in my life, seasons where I have definitely painted the red flags pink. That's good. Yeah. You know, which means like, like, right? Like danger, danger. Don't do this. Don't make this decision. Don't trust this person. And I'm like, "Eh, maybe, maybe, right. Maybe I could, maybe I can. And so I think because those lessons have been so profound for me, I really started to think about how I needed to listen to my gut, that ancient wisdom. And I really, honestly, I don't think there's like three easy steps and here's how you listen to your intuition. And I think if somebody tells you that there are like run for the hills, it's more about 
really that self-connection. That's learning to listen deeply to yourself, learning who you can trust to bounce things off of. Being honest with myself was really important, that whole rigorous self-honesty, because with that came this post-mortem I was doing on my life, like all the other seasons that went before. And the more honest that I was about, how did I make a mistake? Why did I make a mistake? Why did that not work out? And that's not to beat myself up. That's just loaded with lots of compassion. But it's about learning what went wrong and what was my part in those things and making sure that I then entered this season in a different way. So does that make any sense? And just kind of letting go of any, it has to be this way, because my life is not necessarily where I thought it would be at this point. In many ways it is, and in many ways it's not. So how do we let go of the image we have of our life so that we can actually step into the life that we have? And I think one of the reasons why so many people feel disconnection is because they're trying to live a life That's not their true self. Will you say more about that? So we all know huge upticks in addiction, depression, anxiety, domestic violence, suicide. I mean, this is the world we all live in, right? The three of us, this is how we work. This is the world we live in, trauma. In terms of why I think it's so important to connect to our true selves is because when we don't, I believe that our depression and anxiety and addictive behaviors become stronger. In other words, when we're not feeling what we are feeling, when we're pushing our grief aside, when we're leapfrogging over the really traumatic parts of our lives or the deep wounds, I like to say that that stuff goes into the basement, works out with weights and gets stronger, and it will come for us. So the more we can pay attention to our true self more quickly, the more we can feel what we need to be feeling and connect deeply to all of our experiences. That doesn't mean it's all going to be pretty. It just means we're going to be real and authentic and connected. And then I think we have healthier relationships. Yeah, that's really good. I'd love to hear a little bit more sort of going back into the work that you do and the life that you've lived (laughs) sort of in your journey. Um, you are a psychotherapist and you're a leadership coach. And I'd love to hear just about sort of your, your personal journey into those things and how I feel like a lot of us, our personal journeys is just a launching point for the work that we get to do around this. And so I'd love to just hear about how it's all connected for you. Oh man, it's, it's so, I think I fell out of the womb to be a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I laugh about it, but you're right. Like our story begins so early on, way before we even know we're creating a story, right? So um, when I was 10, my mother was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And at that point, I became an adult, like totally unready at the age of 10 to be an adult and yet totally willing to be one if it would save her. And I think it's that phrase right there, if it would save her, that created a lifelong amount of heavy baggage, like heavy enough to be lifted with a forklift and in desperate need of a miracle. Because what happened was over the years, I couldn't save her. And when she died, 
unconsciously, I started looking for other people to save, to prove that I was, you know, worthy or lovable. I mean, I really took it upon myself to save my mother. And now years later, after doing a lot of work on that, when I couldn't do that, it became this unconscious drive to find somebody else that I could rescue and fix. And of course, that, as you can well imagine, created a whole bunch of chaos in my life. It's a lot of responsibility for, you know, a 10-year-old or a 30-year-old or, yeah. Responsibility, trauma, all of it, all of it. So it wasn't until I got really sick and tired of being sick and tired. My biggest addiction is to being a higher power, Mm. is to being a superhero, is thinking I could put my superhero cape on and charge right in and people would throw me a ticker tape parade. But no one does that. Like no one really wants to be saved. And so it created a lot of trauma inside of me that was channeled in some very positive ways, like going to seminary getting my clinical degree in clinical social work, all of those pointed me in a really wonderful direction that activated my natural gifts. And then I had to learn how to separate my natural gifts from the trauma that was still unconsciously pushing me into saving people. So what's the difference between being empathetic and saving people, right? I often say I'm also a recovering empathy holic, <laughs> right? So how do we, how do I show empathy to people without wanting to fix them? Hmm. I think that's a tension that so many therapists or so many people in the helping profession, like get into it and don't always wade through like the work that I'm doing is good. What is the motivator? And it doesn't discredit the great work that you're doing and the people that you're helping and coming alongside. But I think it's just that motivating piece like you were saying. Yeah, it's the motivator. So that's why I like the Enneagram so much is because it's about our motivations and how those can always get jumbled up depending on if we're trying to prove our worthiness or if we're just in our true self, right? The motivation is different depending on how we're coming towards something. So yeah, I just find it fascinating how all of us wind up in a place in our lives where the story about how we got here usually started years ago. So yeah, I came by this honestly. I love my work. I've got the best job in the world. And it's even better now that I don't feel like I have to save people. Yeah. So much better. (laughs) You just get to come alongside them and help illuminate their path for them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even my son who's 20 says, mom, it's so much better now that you're walking beside me Mm. instead of walking in front of me telling me where to walk. I think that's the hardest part is us letting go as parents. That's so insightful for him to be able to verbalize it like that as a 20-year-old. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty amazing. Yeah. Miles often does this experiential exercise with people in different groups and talking about the helping process and the change process in general and how people just make the decision to change. And he shows like pulling someone or pushing them towards health or growth or whatever it might be. And the difference in it sticking, it lasting, it being their decision, and then actually walking next to someone and inviting them on a journey. And that's what I was just thinking of is that We can pull people, we can push people, we can come from our own motivation and baggage to save, 
but it is the inviting to walk alongside that really does make the difference in all areas of our life. So much. So I love that. I, it gives people the grace and dignity to have their own journey. Yeah. Agency is a word we use a lot. I'm interested to hear how you, you did seminary, you were a psychotherapist, how you ended up kind of in the leadership realm and what that looked like in your journey. As part of my psychotherapy world, I was working in the HIV community. And I was talking at a conference about the psychosocial aspects of HIV disease. And a pharmaceutical company heard me talking and they asked me to come on board as a consultant. And then they asked me to come on board as a full-time employee, helping and training their staff and their executives to be more empathetic and sensitive. And I realized I really liked the corporate environment. So one thing led to another. I had a few corporate positions. My last one was reporting to a CEO. And I always knew I wanted to do my own thing. Combining the therapy world, you know, just that real deep dive into our complex human selves with the coaching world for leadership development. So my approach is more of a thera coaching which really just pulls on the deeper psychological dynamics that us complex human beings have here in human school. I mean, it's a hot mess, right? I mean, we are a hot mess and our journeys can be really sticky and messy. And we're complex, we're wonderful, we're amazing. So I love to bring all of that emotional and spiritual and psychological deep dive into the coaching process. So that's what I do. And I have global clients and been doing this for a long, long time. And people just say it's life transforming because it's not just about leadership. It's about who they are in their most human selves. And that's what helps their corporations and their cultures when they connect deeply to themselves. I like to say all the time that we can't MBA our way into leadership anymore. Mm. I think one of the phrases you used in your book was, we're not experiencing a leadership crisis, we're experiencing a human being crisis. And Lindsay and I both went, oh, that's really good and really true. Can you speak more to that? Yeah. How that's informed your work? Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, what do you, yeah, I can, but what do you guys see with that? I love that phrase too, because executives are always showing up to me saying, I feel hollow. I feel empty. I feel disconnected from myself. Things are not going well at home. Yeah. Yeah. I think it it is so interesting how we like to try to separate our personal from our professional lives. And I was talking to a therapist that I was seeing last year kind of regularly. And so much of what I was checking in on was professional in nature. A lot of the wounding that I've had to like do repair work around has been from work environments. And I think that's true. As I talk to other leaders, they are in the same boat that they've had some great bosses in their past and they've had some bad bosses. And, you know, that their imprints, not only that we get from our family of origin, but their imprints that we get in the workplace and they can hold us back or if if we don't work through them, you know, or we can like learn to break patterns. And so I think that the thera coaching that you're talking about is so important and that really what happens in the workplace bleeds into our personal lives and what happens in our personal life bleeds into our workplace as much as sometimes we wish that wasn't the case. Oh, yeah. All, all of that. I mean, so, so well said. All of that. 
I just think that we are going through a really hard time, both personally and professionally. There are so many unsafe psychological places in corporations, and there are really a lot of really unsafe dynamics going on behind closed doors in homes. And sometimes it's the success pieces, like we live in the right neighborhood, we drive the right car, we've gone to this school, we have this degree, we have this title, kind of serves as a veneer that people really start to believe I'm okay, even if I'm not okay, because I have all these outward signs of success. And I think that creates a lot of toxic behaviors in workplaces. The more that we can truly be human, like, okay, we're not leaders having a leadership crisis. We are leaders having a human being crisis is better. And that's the work that you do. And that's the work that I do is just this sense of how can we show up not in inappropriate ways. So I really want to be clear because I think the the word vulnerability Mm, is often misused. Like we don't need people crying in the boardroom. We need people to be very clear about why they're telling a story, mm-hmm. to whom they're telling a story, when they're telling a story, but we can still show up real. Like sometimes when I speak in public, I'll say, you're looking at the impact of addiction, you're looking at the impact of abuse, and I'm not going to tell you the gory details. Like I'm here to tell you a little bit about my story. So I do my part in terms of stepping out of the shadows and breaking the stigma and also giving people hope that we rise up, we recover. And this is how I did that, right? That's the story. How did I do that? And so I, I don't think we need people just dumping their stories and saying, I'm just being human. I think we need to learn how to hold it lightly and tell it in a way that is inspiring and that can invite, like you were saying before, Lindsay, like can invite people onto the path. Hey friends, if you've been listening to the podcast for very long, you have heard us talk about our digital classes and courses. But what you may not know is that we are now offering our classes and courses in a brand new platform. This new platform is easy to use, it's more interactive, and it comes with access to our incredible beta community, where you can meet like-minded people, talk about your emotional health journey, and find an incredible amount of emotional and mental health resources. I love these resources, and they have been a game changer for me in my emotional and mental health. At Onsite, we often say that emotional health is not just something we need, it's something we all deserve. But putting that into practice can be easier said than done. I know in my own life, I love the accessibility, the affordability, and the approachability of what digital offers. So I encourage you to check out our digital classes and our courses at onsiteisonline.com. And I'd love to see you in the community. So head to the checkout and make sure to use the code PODCAST to get 15% off your entire purchase. Is it you referenced the Enneagram earlier and are big fans, but it is sort of the downside of it is that there are people that use it and sort of sort of say, this is who I am. This is the pattern I'm stuck in instead of using it for the full depth of exploration that's available there of like, hey, this is helping me identify patterns so I can break them and have time between sort of 
when something happens and how I react and being able to sort of work in that time to determine how you want to behave. Yeah, it is such a complex instrument, the Enneagram is. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love it is it's it's also very compassionate. It shines this really powerful light on our shadowy sides. And, you know, flaws are my jam. I love flaws. I think that's where our treasures lie. But I think with anything, it has to be used with a tremendous amount of discernment and you start to see things on social media, like all these people are like talking about the Enneagram. And I think people have to be very well trained and very well versed in this complex tool in order to help people use it wisely. Yeah. But, and I think it's a tremendous agent of transformation. I have had executives all over the world call me and say, this is the best thing ever. Like this is part of the life transforming work that we're doing. So it's really helpful. Yeah, me too. It's been very transformative for me. And it took me forever to figure out my number. Like I, I am definitely wasn't one of those people that could read the nine types and then I just stereotypically fit into one. It was layers of peeling back motivation for behavior for me. And so even that journey was very revelatory and frustrating. <laughs> just in terms of just patiently wading through it all. Yeah, just trying to be like, why? Like, why do I do this? What is Because I behaviorally would look more like one number. I would test like one number, but it didn't really line up as much with my motivation. And so it just was a little harder to figure out. That's the litmus test for the Enneagram, though. It's our motivation, right? So my my process was different in that my picture should really be by the Enneagram, too. Like, this is the Enneagram. (laughs) Like, seriously, (laughs) There is no doubt about it. I know. <laughs> Mackenzie is similar in that she like could be by the picture of the seven. We laughed once because she we would send her to the store to get snacks and she came back with like wasabi peas and then the marshmallows from um just like the cereal. It was just the marshmallows. Lucky just the marshmallows. Lucky charms. And I was like, this is, the, if we didn't know your number, we'd know it now. You are seven. That is funny. Yeah, that is so funny. Yeah. And I think yeah. even in a work context, like knowing the Enneagram and doing kind of the work around that as a team has been really helpful for me to know, hey, this is how I can connect with this person. This is, it's just understanding both myself so that I can better understand how I interact with someone else. Like, yes, I I am a seven and my motivation is to not be in pain. So, you know, <laughs> at all times. But I think even in a work context, it's been really helpful to know that and to know and to be able to identify like, hey, as a full human, walking through COVID was a really hard thing to be a seven. It was really hard to be anyone walking through COVID, uh, but there were particular challenges that I was bringing into the workplace. I think so many of us have been in, when you were talking earlier about what are we seeing? I think something that I've seen is that breakdown between home and life. We talk a lot about work-life balance and we eroded that two years ago. Like we actually brought our work into our homes and is become a lot of who we are. And I think that's something that I'm seeing is that people are starting to peel that back again and say, okay, who am I first and foremost as a human? And then how am I showing up in a work environment and casting off that identity? So that's something. A lot of us are waiting through. Well, you know, research is showing now that 77% of employees, so 77% of employees are looking for workplaces in which they can connect mm. to not just other people, but to a deep sense of purpose. 
So that whole theme of connection to self and then connection to a higher purpose and connection to others and how interrelated they all are is really important, I believe. I think COVID certainly exacerbated the struggles we're having with mental health, but it didn't cause it. And I really would love people to really think about a lot of this was just kind of sitting there waiting for us to pay attention to it. And it all just burst forth, but COVID didn't cause all of this. And I think in response, people or more people now than ever are saying, there's got to be a better way for me to live, for me to show up truer to who I am, more empathetic, more accountable, right? So all those things that really foster connection. Connection. That is a passion of yours. You um, have recently or in the last year put out a book called The Connected Leader. So I'd love to hear about connection and why you think it's important in leadership and just about the book. You know, you know this. I'm preaching to the choir here. So we are, truly I am, we are neurobiologically wired to connect. We need connection like we need water and safety and all the things we need so desperately. However, I maintain that most human beings don't know how to connect in a healthy way. So a lot of things might pass as connection because people are hustling for approval or they're looking for belonging. So, so many things will pass as connection. And I think true and healthy connection can only really happen once we connect to ourselves. So if that is the baseline, We have to learn how to figure out who we are. We can't connect to or lead anybody else until we connect to and lead ourselves. And that's hard work. It's like an archaeological dig. Now, on the other hand, I think that people are more desirous of connection now than ever before, which is why we have a lot of things passing for connection. As as an example, social media. Don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of really good things come from social media. And yet some people, that's the only way that they're finding connection. And so they're coming up empty. And there's that hollow and disconnected feeling. And in terms of what drives connection, through my own story, it's been a messy one. And through just watching the executives that I work with and then also people in my life, there are seven activating attributes that help us kind of make our connection wiring come alive. Things like learning how to listen deeply, but starting that with ourselves. Because if we can't listen to ourselves, how can we really listen to other people? And empathy, the same thing. How can we show ourselves empathy? How can we learn to be accountable? How can we own what we need to own? And once we learn how to do these things and and activate that connection to ourself, then we can bring them into relationships in a healthier way. When you were talking earlier about being a connected leader and Lindsay was talking about how our personal lives cannot be separated from our professional lives, I thought about doing a Living Center program at Onsite and how I thought I was going in for one thing and really came out. I wanted to like, okay, I'm going to get healthy for all of these people. But really, I was getting healthy for me. And then I was able to show up in all the places that I was leading. I was able to show up better at home. I was able to show up at work with my friends and my faith community. And I think it goes back to that that motivation piece again. But when I connected with myself and when I did that work for me, I was then able to show up. And that was the byproduct. But 
if I had just gone in to say, hey, I want to be a better leader, so I'm going to learn how to connect, it would have never worked. And so how have you seen that be counterproductive to maybe what we would believe in a, in a contemporary leadership model, that I need to do this work to lead my team, or I need to do X to do this, when I think what we say at Onsite is to become a better leader, you need to become a better human. Like, what have you seen in your experience around that and helping people kind of address maybe the fear that, or even the misconception that they need to get healthy for someone else or do this work to be for a team and really doing it for themselves? I think that desire to do it for somebody else comes from the mistaken notion that to take care of ourselves is selfish. Mm. So I can't be doing it just for myself because that would mean I'm selfish or I'm self-absorbed or I'm not serving other people. And I've learned the hard way that until we learn to connect with ourselves and invest in ourselves and give to ourselves, other relationships can be damaging. They can be manipulative. They can be all those things because we're trying to get our needs met in ways that are not direct. And so, you know, in, in, I, I hear it a lot in the 12-step recovery rooms is, well, I'm coming here to help so-and-so. And until that changes into, no, I'm coming here to reclaim my life. I'm doing this work because I matter. Until we start to have that sense of self, other relationships can suffer. So I think for me, like I have this connection manifesto that I've worked out for myself. Like what are the ways that I connect to myself? How do I build connection for other people? I think it's really important for folks to take the time to think about connection as a way of life. Mm. And how is it, what fuels us? What like fills our cup? When do we feel really um, present and comfortable? And then how do we build connection with other people off of that? How do we create sacred space? But we really can't create sacred space until we're somewhat comfortable with ourselves. I don't think we're completely comfortable with ourselves 100% of the time. It's a journey. But once we get to that point, we're like, you know, I'm good. I feel like I can listen to that inner voice. I feel like I really understand what I, where I came from and what my story is. Then I think we can take that and build really healthy relationships in empathetic ways. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it's really good. I was thinking as you were talking kind of before you got into it, I was like, how if somebody is like sort of recognizing the sense of disconnection that they're feeling, like where did they start? And what I feel like you shared was so practical that sometimes it's really being attuned to when you do feel the moments of connection and leaning into those and creating more experiences like that and sort of taking an inventory of like, when, when, is, when do I feel disconnected and why? And when do I feel most connected and why? And then how do I lean more towards the connection? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have a um, free resource on my website for people to take a 20-day journaling self-discovery journey 
that allows them to do exactly that, Lindsay, like figure out what the connection points are for themselves, figure out where they feel joy, figure out what they're grateful about. There's journal prompts. And then at the end of it, they build this connection manifesto. And one of the things on my own personal one is that I absolutely love the soul nourishing table. Like that's one of my things. So it's like the theology of the table. I love having people around my table. And when I think about it, it helps me feel connected to myself. I love cooking for people. It's so nourishing. But when I have people around my table, it's one of those moments that are just magical because we have the food. So for me, that means like communion and we have the stories. So that's liturgy. And then we have this sense of what's going on among all of us. And that's really redemptive. So it's about taking the time to just pick apart the parts of our life that fuel us and then building more around those parts. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I know that my sort of reflex is to think that if I'm not feeling connected with somebody, like what's wrong with them? (laughs) You know, like that, that's my automatic instinct is either what's wrong with them or what's wrong in the relationship. And then I've like, as I become more attuned to it, sometimes it's that I'm not fully showing up in the moments that I'm with a person. And that it's like my receptors aren't on. Mm-hmm. And and so it's just interesting being, as we step into it, we realize that we do have more autonomy and ownership and agency even over how connected we can feel to ourselves and even to other people. Absolutely. I love that. I mean, that's really honest because the first thing to do we, for most of us is to look at the other person and blame the other yeah. person, right? Now, having said that, there are times when we're not connecting with someone because of their stuff. Right, for sure. It's not, as a two, like I could take ownership for everything, including world hunger. Like everything's my fault when I'm not in a good place, when I'm not in a healthy place. It's hard though work, isn't it? To tease out what's mine, what's not mine. That's that's like the work of a lifetime. It is the work of a lifetime. I think there's grace on both ends of like, okay, so I'm not showing up as my best self, but then because I'm not showing up, then you're feeling maybe disconnected from me because I'm not connected with myself. And so then you're coming across a certain way. Like, I think it's just, it is a ongoing dynamic when it comes to connection. And I think that's why so many of us are struggling with it is that we haven't learned how to even listen for it. Like when you said, figure out the ways that you connect. I thought, can you give me some examples? Like, can I have a checklist to know, like, what are what are ways to connect? Because I sometimes feel that clueless to know what would even be the recipe to that. So thank you for providing your example. That was really helpful. And I think helping people conceptualize, okay, where are places that I do feel connected with myself and with others? Because we know, we feel those magic moments. Like, you can identify them when you're in them, for sure. Yeah. And how do we slow down this this crazy pace that we all are on to do what I call chasing slow. Because I do think that if we don't have some kind of reflective solitude or stillness built into our lives and so hard when you have young children, I remember when, you know, my son was growing up, I would have to get up at 4am to have quiet time. It was worth it because, you know, it wasn't a very pretty picture when mommy didn't have her own, her own quiet time before the day got started. It really wasn't. I've learned that's one of the ways that I 
anchor myself, is to have that solitude, that mindfulness. It's easier for me to hold sacred space for people when I fuel myself in the morning. Mm. Lindsay and I are both very much in those early, early wake up calls with the, you have an eight month old and I have a two year old, you know. Sleep is, sleep is not something I'm willing to sacrifice right now. <laughs> get it, I get it. That's also, I get that. mommy's not great. You've mentioned chasing slow a couple of times and it's really piqued my interest. Could you just talk a little bit more about what that looks like for you? So for me, it's a lifestyle. I, I, look, when I say this, it doesn't mean that I'm doing it perfectly <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. It's more of a lifestyle. It means being intentional, being mindful, taking stillness and solitude when you can, being tuned in to your own feelings and thoughts, and also just finding pleasure in small things, finding joy in simple pleasures. So we don't always, we're not always chasing the high, but we're chasing just being present in this really wonderful, beautiful life that we have and learning to be right where we are, even during the really messy times because I think there's treasure in these messy times. And that doesn't mean anything near toxic positivity because that really breaks us. But what it means is just like stepping into whatever it is that we're feeling. So I think when we start to chase slow, what happens is we start to heal our hearts and we start to connect to our spirits and we start to actually hear our lives changing. You know, there's that old adage that goes something like nothing changes if nothing changes and I've got to be the change. So when we chase slow, we start to see the things that we're changing and we're like, oh, that really matters. Or I showed up differently there. Or that was just a very new way of having a conversation and it was helpful. So we're present to all those things. That's good. That is a beautiful invitation. I love it. Well, kind of as we um, are rounding out, I one other thing that you touched on that I wanted to make sure that we chatted about was just finding that balance in whatever area we are in, whether it be at home or whether it be in the boardroom or leadership of like finding safe people and when and how to tell the story. And so I would love to just hear from your experience. What are some of your tips around knowing what to share, where, and how, and even just like checking in with yourself around that? Mm, what a great question. I wish I had like, these are the three steps. <laughs> no, I just want to hear your experience on how to do that. Because I think it's something that in my own life, it's, it's been an a ongoing journey to figure out the right places to, to do that well. So yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. Because we want to show up real and authentic. So I'm talking from a perspective of somebody who used to be an oversharer. And for me, I had to learn that that was really a trauma response that I told too much of my own story too quickly and that that was just from my own anxiety. So that was really a really interesting journey for me because it's taken me to a place where I'm still very honest about my story, about where I've been, about how I've healed, because I think there comes a responsibility to share that with the world so other people can also find their way into healing. I trust my gut. And so that's also a gift of chasing slow. The stiller that I am with myself, the more I pay attention to what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. So for instance, you know, the other night I was out for dinner with someone and I realized when I came home 
but this is not necessarily a person I want to spend a lot of time with. The old me would have, because I was anxious, would have talked too much about myself during that evening and then come home and probably try to convince myself that I should give it another go. So I think that just being able to tune into ourselves, do we feel safe? Do we feel like we want to put something out there? I also believe in, like, we don't have to tell our, all, our whole story all at once. We can just give a little piece, like little, like, appetizer, and, and see how that goes and see how that feels and see how the person responds. Mm-hmm. So I think we all have to find our own way, but it's also about having trusted guides around us so that we can check in with them. Mm-hmm. That's good. And ask them if how we're processing something makes any sense or if they can give us any feedback about that. Yeah, that's really good. I, um, in the early days of blogging, I used to blog a lot. And it was funny because it was, I am not as much of a verbal processor, but when I write things down, they just sort of come forth. And so in blogging, it was like very revelatory for me. And I love that it was catalytic for conversation and connection with other people. But a lot of times, like my close personal friends would be like, I had no idea that you were thinking these things, you know? (laughs) And so, uh, you know, as I matured and sort of got burned a few times, I sort of learned that I needed to right size my vulnerability online and Mm -hmm. make sure that I pulled friends in closer and family in closer and sort of that they weren't the last to hear after yeah. all my okay. readers. So um, it just was an interesting process. And then as I attended the Living Centered program at Onsite, one of the analogies I use sort of in thinking about that is that sort of your experience there is like sacred to you. And it's kind of like you're holding a deck of cards and you can like be true and authentic with other people and still hold all your cards or you can just, dis- you know, determine if you want to play one or you can determine if you want to lay down your whole hand, but you don't have to. They're your deck of cards to play when it's appropriate and when it feels safe, like you said. So that what you said totally resonated with me. Yeah. And know when to fold and know when to walk away, right? Yes. (laughs) That Kenny Rogers song. Well, and for me too, I think the important thing in terms of vulnerability is to, to remember that we live in a world now where self-obsession is confused with vulnerability, right? Like so many times when I scroll through Instagram and Lord have mercy, you know, I I try very hard not to do all of that, but there's people on there like just dumping it all. And in such a way that almost feels like their personal story and their children's story and their spouse's story all becomes fodder for entertainment or currency to get followers. Like we're watching a train wreck. And I have a really strong opinion about that because that's not vulnerability. And I think people believe it is. That's good. I think one, Lindsay dropped that analogy on me. It was so good and so revolutionary for me. I think just coming from the faith community that I came in, there was a lot of messaging that I received about like vulnerability and sharing and letting people in and just... Uh, protecting and owning my story and saying this is my story and like honoring that was a really a really big part and continues to be a big part of my journey and I am also interested with the social media piece and with like leadership and thought leaders and all of that I think that it is a currency and something that I have noticed um, 
actually our CEO do really well is that she, I've seen her pick specific and like strategic moments to let us in on small pieces of her that have felt like, oh, this is an appropriate level of transparency or vulnerability when, you know, and finding that balance as a leader to, to do that well. And I would just love to hear you say about that because you want to be transparent and lead out in that for people, but also what is too much and knowing the audience there too. Am I making sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll tell I'll tell a story if I may. Yeah. So, a few weeks ago, I got caught up in some really unhealthy drama. Some of my unfinished business got triggered. It was with somebody that was working in our firm. That person has since left, but honestly, as a result of getting caught up in some of that, there was some hurt that I created for other people on the team. So I went to my two highly valued team members and said, look, I need to apologize. So I owned it. I said, I got caught up in some drama. I got triggered. It was a a huge awakening. I took it to my prayer life. I did all the things I needed to do. I've learned a lot. And I know that I hurt you. So I'm going to make an amends to you. I'm going to do all the things I need to do. Can you forgive? I mean, I had that conversation and I owned it. Now, what happened though, was I didn't get into all the gory details. Okay. So I didn't say what actually got triggered for me and how it related to X, Y, or Z decades ago or in my childhood, because that was not even important. That would have been way too much information. So I owned it and I felt like I was vulnerable and honest. And my team members were like, this is so valuable. We can't thank you enough. And I'm not patting myself on the back here at all. I'm just saying it was meaningful to them. And it, it, they said it role modeled vulnerability because I owned what I needed to own. I didn't go into a lot of details and it also created deeper connection. Did that answer your question, Mackenzie? That was a great example, I think, of knowing the difference between I'm just going to be transparent, which I think is a word that we use a lot in social media and in our world today. And I'm going to, the, the actual definition of authentic vulnerability and how it brings connection on the other side and not asking them to care for you, not asking them to wade into something that they don't have all the context for, or maybe even haven't earned the right to speak into or to hear. Yeah. I think that was really, really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Karen, this has been so good. Thank you so much for chatting with us. We are so grateful for this time you've given us. Yeah, I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you, Lindsay and Mackenzie. Such a great time. So great. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.